We had a, a really wonderful week. Uh, we took a couple of days off, and um, uh, Wednesday afternoon and, and Thursday, and uh, we, we drove down to Pennsylvania and uh, went to the Sight and Sound Theatres in Lancaster County. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there. Anybody ever been to the Sight and Sound Theatres? Well, a few of you have. Oh, my word. It's a Broadway-quality show uh, put on. Uh, they, they, they put on these amazing shows, and they run them for a year. And uh, the, the cast uh, are just spectacularly talented. And... Um, and so filled with the grace of God and the Spirit of the Lord and the presentations were really amazing. This one was The Life of David. And um, i got to say, it was worth every penny that we paid. And every minute, every hour that we'd, we drove down there, I am so grateful we did that. Tammy and I sat in the theater. This is a 2,000-seat theater, and they run the show three times a day. And it's jam-packed every, every show. And they run the show for a year. So you can imagine, it's just a lot of people through there. But... The um, Tammy and I sat, the show ended about two and a half hours, and when it was over, we just couldn't even move. I just sat there weeping openly and uh, just sitting in my chair, just weeping at the grace of the Lord demonstrated through this incredible, um, this incredible talent, the great storytelling. Of course, it's a biblical story, but they, they accented things that you and I might not catch when we're reading, and they, the songs, the music, it was a musical, so... The music, uh, David's psalms interspersed through the show in these songs, these original songs that they sang. And then <laughs> just the incredible set. I was astonished at what the Lord has allowed these people to do. It started out this story. They were a couple of farmers, husband and wife, who liked to travel and take photographs of the places that they went. And so... Their friends like to see the photographs of where they went. I mean, I don't know how many of you gather friends around after you've been on a vacation and say, hey, watch, here's a picture of us on our cruise, you know. Um, not, not very exciting, I'd say, mostly. <laughs> oh, look, here's me eating a lobster. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that people loved seeing their, their pictures. They were just very gifted. And so they started to, they, they made a place in a barn and began to show on a regular basis, their pictures, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And now, 50 years later or 60 years later, whatever it is, it's they have two theaters, one in Branson, Missouri, and one here uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, they pack it out with 2,000 people every show, three times a day, seven days a week or six days a week. And um, it's amazing what God will do with a commitment, even to a simple vision. And I got thinking, wow. I wonder what God will have done through us here at Living Hope Family Church when we've been around for 60 or 70 years. We've been here for 25 years already. That's wonderful. Hey, thank you, Jesus. Right? It's actually a little bit longer than 25 years. This is, uh, I think, 27, year 27 the church has been here. But um, small, seemingly insignificant, but not insignificant. Because God doesn't look at the external appearances. He looks at the heart. And, uh, and I just wanted to encourage you this morning with this idea that God can do big things, bigger than we could think. And what he's looking for is the heart that's committed to him and just willing to believe that God is able to do ridiculously big things. I want you to, I want you to turn in your Bibles to... Um, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. 
And um, I want to read this verse to you. It's a familiar verse. You'll, you'll recognize it. And then I want to read a matching verse in Jude, in the little tiny little letter that Jude wrote, right before the book of Revelation. You'll see it there, Jude, and verse 24 of that one. So you can kind of stick your finger in both of those places. And um, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says this, Now, unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want you just to look at that verse again. And I want you to look at it with some eyes like, uh, like microscope lenses. Okay? I want you to take a look at this and just drill down. Let's look at it again. Now to him who is able. To him who is able. And we could get into this and just preach a good old sermon about about for whom all of our activity should be and unto whom all the glory ought to go. We could do that because there's, the, there's that conjunction. There's that, that word that's showing the motion towards. It's to, unto him, unto him. We could do that. I'm not going to do that. Unto him who is able. That's something worth drilling down on. How much do you believe that God is able to do? This morning, I pray, I hope that by the end of the service, you will be more keenly aware that God is able than you were when you arrived this morning. I was astonished at what God was able to do. There's a verse that says that, um, that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro across all the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. The eyes of the Lord seeking. There are a couple of verses in the Old Testament where Isaiah the prophet or Jeremiah or someone says, you know, the Lord looked and there was no one to stand in the gap. Of course, Jesus is the one who stood on our behalf. And we recognize that those, that those, those verses speak specifically about Jesus having to come and be the one to take a stand for us because we could not save ourselves. But... Nevertheless, this idea that God is looking, that he's perusing, he's searching even, and examining, maybe even sifting, to see what remains, what's wheat, what's chaff. Is God able? Oh, yes, he's able. But do we believe that God is able? Well, that's another question. And there are, of course, many times that we have said, yes, Lord, you're able. We were having a conversation about this last night. Yes, God, you're able. And we have jumped out there, walked out on this, you know, jumped off of the boat into the water in the hopes that we'll walk on that water. And here we are just sinking. Uh, God, you, you were looking for willing hearts and we were the willing hearts. And here we are still willing. But what are you doing? What, what aren't, why aren't you doing anything? And uh, we could get all caught up in that. It is true. But um, the truth is that, uh, that God is able. And before anything's going to happen through us, we have to align ourselves with that kind of thinking. 
that God is able. And we must never forget that God is able, even when it appears like he's not doing what we want him to do. He's also able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Far more abundantly. Which suggests to me that we are not thinking big enough. And I know that you've heard this a million times before, but today you need to hear it again. I need to hear this again. We're not thinking big enough. We take a look around us and we think, okay, well, this is what we got. We'll just do this with what we got. Five loaves and two fish. Let's have lunch. But Jesus is always thinking bigger. Far more abundantly than we ask or think. And he is able to do it. Now, unto him be the glory, of course, in the church. So, before we get into the according to the power at work within us part, let's just hear the call to praise. To him be glory in the church. The world is not going to glorify God. Not, not, on, not voluntarily. They will one day bow their knee because they have to. But the world is not in the habit of praising God for his goodness. The church is where the glory of God is to be manifested. The church is where the glory of God needs to, be, needs to be demonstrated. The church is where we need to give God that glory. And in the church, I think, we give glory to God by believing that he is able to do more. So this is definitely a call out of our complacency, most assuredly a call out of our complacency into a place of trusting a God who is able to do more. And then, of course, that middle part, according to the power that's at work within us. What is this power that is at work within us? That's a good question, isn't it? I'm not going to answer it for you. I want you to figure it out. What is the power of God at work in me? Is the power of God at work in me? And don't, don't answer it here for anybody else. I want everybody to go home and wrestle with that question. You know? <laughs> I see Debbie's got her hand ready. She's... You were one of those. You were one of those gold star students, weren't you? you? You were. You were. I love it. Debbie's always ready with an answer, but don't give the answer, Debbie. You hold on to that answer in your own heart. But I want everyone here to go home and say, "What is the power of God at work in me? Is the power of God at work in me? And is that power at work within us, not just me, but within us? How do we get to the place where it goes from me to us?" Anyway, in Jude, there's another. Another benediction, now unto him. There's another one of these now unto hims. And, and I, I, I wrote a song about it, about both of these, and we sang it last week in church, actually. But um, I'm sure many have written these doxologies in, into, uh, into song. And many will, should the Lord tarry. But here's another one. Now to him, verse 24, who is able. Now to him who is able. Now unto him who is able. Gosh. Who is able to keep you from stumbling. The first one talks about his glory. The first one talks about what he's able to do. The first one talks about how he can do exceedingly abundantly more than you ask or think. The second one talks about keeping us from stumbling. Keeping us on the straight and narrow. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Anybody looking for some joy? 
God is able to bring us to that place of joy. Some of us need that joy again. God knows we do. He's able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a fantastic song of praise. But I want you to hear that God is able, that he's able to do more, that he's able to keep you, that he's able to present you. And I want that to sink into your heart so that you say, I just want to follow that guy. I want to follow him. That little expedition to Pennsylvania stirred up my heart to say, Lord, in what way can we believe you for more? In what way can we believe you for more? I don't know that we'll ever build something so huge. That's wonderful that they built it. It is amazing. But God calls each of us to different things. And he calls each congregation, each, each community. So that community in Lancaster was able to do that. They, they, they felt the vision. They heard the vision. They came together. They built it. They did it. It's beautiful. God calls us to do different things. And this congregation has been called by the Lord and continues to be called by the Lord to bring the glory of God in our generation in this city and to carry the glory of God to faraway parts of the world. From this congregation, we travel all over the place. Jason's going to Ireland, and uh, God knows. He's a, an arrow in the Lord's bow, and the Lord is going to shoot him out there. And, and, and his work takes him there, but that's an opportunity for him to go to the nations. And we lay claim to that, my brother. And, uh, and, and people from other parts of the world here so we can encourage you in your faith so you can carry the glory of the Lord as well and be stirred up. Living Hope is one of those places that God just, I think he just brings people in, stirs them up and sends them out. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think God wants to do bigger things than we've asked and more than what we've imagined. So, so how do we do this? How do we figure out what's working on the inside of us? How do we access that? How do we give God glory? And, uh, and as you know, for these last, uh, these last months since returning from the Camino, I've really had a focus on pilgrimage. Uh, why wouldn't I? We, we, did, we did a lot of walking and pilgrimage was right on our minds. So I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, for the next few minutes. And, um, but in the context of this, that God is able to do more because because I think he wants to. And, um, and I, had some, I had some thoughts that, uh, uh, that occurred to me uh, last week. Before Dave uh, Smethurst was here and, and spoke, uh, I woke up one morning with just these thoughts on my mind um, because I'm trying to consider how in the world do we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we carry the glory of God in such a way that God does unexpected things through us? I'm all for God doing miracles in the mundane, okay? And I know he does that. It's the most of our lives are spent in the sort of mundane, everyday workings of our lives. And God works miracles there too. But I also love it when God does extraordinary things. Extraordinary things could be uh, as simple as a neighbor actually coming to Christ, right? That would be extraordinary because most of our neighbors are not just banging our doors down to say, tell me about Jesus, right? So it would be extraordinary. I mean, you have a neighbor that's been banging on your door, Jay, and, and praise God. What a wonderful thing. That's extraordinary. I want that grace for all of us, right? So I'm starting to ask God, how do we do this? How do we carry the glory of God? And it appears to me that 
that Psalm 84 that we were reading when I, the first Sunday I came back from the Camino. Do you remember when I came back in church, I was reading to you guys from Psalm 84. And in there, there was that verse about, blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, right? For every one of them appears before God in Zion. And though they go through the valley of Baca, they turn it into a place of springs, wellsprings. And Baca, of course, we, we looked at that word to say, what does that mean? It, it could mean uh, a place of... of, of um, um, uh, sorrow, of, of tears, uh, of weeping. It could mean a place of drought. Uh, we weren't quite sure. The scholars are divided on exactly what it means. But it, it's, it appears that just from a, from a poetic standpoint, what the author of the psalm is trying to get to us is that, that the pilgrims of God walk through this pilgrimage in dry places or in difficult places. But pilgrims who have their hearts set on pilgrimage, Christians who have their hearts set on pilgrimage, those who follow Yahweh with their hearts set on arriving at his royal city rather than making a home for themselves here in this world, they go through the valley or the difficult place or the, the place of weeping and they make it into a place of wellsprings that bring life for others who are in the wilderness. And that was the part that I was just really focusing on and, and uh, wanting to get to. And I, I know we kind of went all over the place for the last few months uh, talking about this straight and narrow way. But we want to talk about being on pilgrimage. We want to return to the ancient way and walk the ancient way that has always been there for us in the scripture. Not some newfangled version of this. Not some culturally relevant version of this. Not some adjusted version of this that 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 uh, takes our, our old... Uh, milestones, our old markers, our old, um, our old, uh, 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 yeah, milestones, and moves them. We don't want that. The boundaries. That's sort of not moving the boundary markers. We want to return to those ancient boundary markers and walk the way that's been walked for generation after generation after generation. Because we know that the blessing of the Lord is something that we desire. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the blessing of the Lord, and I, I failed to get to the part. Old Testament, Deuteronomy, where Moses is bringing the children of Israel out of the wilderness into their promised land, right? So they've been on pilgrimage now 40 years or so, supposed to be a much shorter journey, you know that. But now they're arriving at the gates of the promised land, as it were, and Moses is giving them uh, the, 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 the speech, the, the cursing and blessing speech. And he says, blessed will you be if you honor the Lord in this way and you do all these things. And he gives a chapter's worth of blessings. And then he gives two chapters worth of cursing if they abandon God. Okay, And what we discovered, and I said this in one of the earlier sessions, is that there are definitely two ways that you can go. One leads to God and one leads away from God. And narrow is the road that leads to uh, life and broad is the road that leads to destruction and we talked about that didn't we and i wanted to point out that there's blessing on the journey for those who walk the narrow road and the blessing of the lord is something that we want in our lives because if there's the blessing of god in our lives i'm pretty sure we'll be carrying his glory and i'm pretty sure that we'll turn our wilderness into wellsprings and I'm pretty sure that that will result in other people finding Christ. So as I've been sort of wrestling through this metaphor in my mind, I've come to the place where I, I think it's, it's perhaps most simple to say that the narrow way is the way of salvation and sanctification. We've got to be saved, but then we've also got to be made holy. Right? That's the narrow road. 
And, uh, and those two things have to be absolutely shored up in our mind. And we've got to recognize that. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that we don't want to politicize this. We don't want to start getting up on our soapboxes and taking a stand against all the ills of the world around us. Because quite honestly, there will always be ills in the world around us. And if we get focused on standing against those things, even even you know the righteous war, uh, as it were, if we get focused on that, we're going to miss the, the opportunity for the gospel doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in some sort of, you know, in, in social justice to some degree, and we ought to be taking care of the people around us and reaching out when there are needs and so forth. Yes, and we'll get to that, but that cannot be our primary focus because the world will not be saved through social justice. As a matter of fact, salvation belongs entirely to the Lord, and we cannot save the world by making it a better place. As a matter of fact, I'll even go so far as to say we are not saved by the teachings of Jesus. Pause and think before you freak out. If we could be saved by the teachings of Jesus, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. All he needed to do was teach us. We can only be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice had to be made. We are not saved by becoming better people because we follow the instruction of a great master, some guru, Jesus. We are saved because Jesus became the propitiation for us before God. He took our sin upon himself and was crucified as the sacrificial lamb that we might be able to stand before God faultless, blameless, without stumbling in his presence. Salvation is of God. We cannot save ourselves. And therefore, if we go into the world around us with the idea that we will save them by making, them, making our environment better, we will not, we will not all of the goodwill of mankind, cannot save mankind. This doesn't mean that we don't engage in acts of goodwill. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, but our focus must be Christ. Jesus had to die. He had to die because our sins cannot be forgiven by good works. It cost blood. And God paid. So, if we cannot be saved by the teachings of Jesus, what are the, what's the point of the teachings of Jesus? That's a good question. I want to refer to two arcs, and uh, this is another thought I had. I woke up with this thought, and um, I love it. Sometimes I, I, I'm wrestling with God. I'm trying to find answers. Can't find a thing. Go to sleep. Wake up the next morning, and bing, there's the answer. It's amazing. I, it comes while I'm sleeping. I can't even. I can't lay any. You know, take any credit for it because it's not my own thought process. I just wake up and boom, there's an answer from the Lord. <laughs> okay, let me write that down. That's good. You know, wow. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> there were two arcs in the Old Testament. Am I right? The first one uh, was the one that Noah built, and the second one was the one that Moses built, or 
Bezalel and Aholiab actually built it. But anyway, but uh, built by Moses. These two arcs, and they're quite different, aren't they? It's funny that they use the same word. I'm not sure. I haven't really done a study on the Hebrew to find out if the word ark is identical in both places. But they both carried things, didn't they? They both carried things. And uh, one of them was an ark of salvation. The other one was the ark of the presence of God. And uh, I'm looking at this and, and seeing a pattern, an Old Testament pattern that I think duplicates itself in, in the, the sort of story of salvation history. I think, it's, I think it's part of a pattern that God develops and, and we can, if we see it, we're like, wow, oh, here it is here too. You know what I mean? I, I love looking at the Bible, looking for patterns. And I know that, uh, that there are some scholars who think that that is just horrendous. Um, but uh, they're also they're very boring to read those scholars, and they they uh, they don't seem really to have any life and liberty to them. They just they're just looking at literature. But I look at it. They say, well, how can somebody who wrote it think you know of this, and then years later it, the pattern emerges here as if somehow, you know what? The Holy Spirit gave inspiration, and the Holy Spirit, if he's the author, and he's just using the hands of of men as you know the pen of men as his as his agent. Then, if he's telling the story, if he's writing the story, then of course he can write patterns into it. And I have no trouble seeing the patterns and and watching the pattern of Christ's salvation emerge from old to new. I mean, after all, with with Abraham offering Isaac, uh, don't you think that that's a perfect pattern of God offering His own Son? Um, and, and, and where did he do it? He did it on Mount Moriah. Where was Jesus crucified? On Mount Moriah. I mean, come on. God will provide a lamb. And sure enough, he, this is the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Believe in him, you know. And uh, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, etc. See the patterns. Of course you can see the patterns. So what about the pattern of these two arcs? I thought about this because we were having a controversy um, as we were talking about... Uh, uh, we got pretty real here. For those of you who weren't here in, in church for the last month or so, we, we got real. We started talking about some of the the um, agendas uh, right now. As we kids are getting ready to go back to school a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the um, uh, the terrifying thought of the uh, um, the transgender instruction that's being given to our kids and the teachers have to observe and so forth. And that's a really big, hot, you know, political thing at the moment. And, uh, and we talked about how should we respond as a church to this? How do we respond as Christians? How do we respond within our own context? Even within our own church, we have uh, students who go to school with other students who are hearing these things and may even come from families that don't look like traditional families. And, uh, and how, you know, how, do you, how do you talk to your friend? If Let's say you're in the fourth grade. Uh, maybe you're in the eighth grade and your, and your friends are, are from these, these different uh, you know, expressions now of what is commonly accepted in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and throughout the United States and in the world even as a new version of family or a new version of, of gender identity or a new version of this and that. How do we deal with that? So we had some controversy even here as we talked through what we're supposed to do with this. And, uh, and, and on the one hand, you've got people who say, well, gosh, you know, uh, I think we need to stand up on our soapbox and we need to declare and we need to fight against this and we need to shut these things down. But that hasn't really ever worked before. It hasn't really created the utopia on earth that we hoped for. Even when, when Christians were in charge of government, I mean, look back to the ancient, the ancient Roman era and, uh, and how the church was the, the state religion and things were imposed and whatnot. And it didn't really work, did it? It didn't really work. Because you can't legislate um, and, and, and then hope that somehow morality will emerge in the hearts of people. Our hearts are exceedingly wicked. And so we need something greater than that. So as a, as a congregation, kind of the, the direction that I was espousing, and uh, 
you can follow it if you want to or not. As for me and my house, this is where we're going to go. We're going to honor the Lord according to the ancient way, but I can't make you do that or make anybody else do that. Within the council, within the household of faith, we can say this is right, this is wrong, and we will uphold right and wrong here within the household of faith because we are all in covenant with Jesus. We've said yes to the covenant of the Lord. Every Sunday morning as we take the blood, we're saying, yes, I'm in. I'm part of the in group. I'm, I'm saying yes to, to being part of your rules and regulations. But So we've got that group. We've got another group that says, well, we, we don't want to offend anybody and we don't want to we don't want to exclude anybody, and we want to make sure everybody's welcome. And and uh, and, and you know, maybe we need to revise and so forth. No. The first ark was built for salvation, and God was the one who closed the door, because Noah couldn't close the door. When he entered into the ark, the Bible says God closed the door, sealed it up. And God is the one who says yes or no when it comes to salvation. God opens the door and he closes the door, but the door is his. We enter through his door. And therefore, I think when it comes to salvation, we need to let God be the one who determines. What does it mean to be saved? And he's already shown us. He's shown us that if we repent from our sins and turn to the living God, if we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and declare His Lordship, we will be saved, us and our households. God closes the door. And salvation of that nature carries us. We don't carry the ark, the ark carries us. And we are not saved through our own efforts, through our own work, through our own anything. We are saved by God's grace. And the pattern of the salvation, although Noah did build the ark as God told him to build it, and there is definitely a participation in salvation with us. We do have to get out there and work out our own salvation, as it were. But the salvation itself is actually afforded by God. God carries us in his ark, and Christ is that ark. So salvation is of the Lord, and we cannot save ourselves. And we must let God open and close the door as he will. By the way, God left the door open to the very last minute. And anybody who wanted to be saved could have been. But they didn't want to. And it is also appropriate for us to recognize that there are some who will not be saved. And ours is not to grieve and mourn over that, but to rejoice rather that the Lord has those who are his own. There comes a time when we must simply let God be God. And we cannot save those who will not be saved. The next ark was a different ark. It didn't carry the people, but the people carried it. And that ark was the ark of the presence of the Lord. And the presence of the Lord amongst his people is God's desire to take up his home in our homes, to be in our midst, that we might see him, that God might be with his people, that he might be our God and we might be his people. That's his desire. 
But the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Presence of the Lord, could not be carried by oxen, by mechanisms. The Ark of the Presence of the Lord could not be carried by those who were not holy. But the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was to be carried on the shoulders of those who were set apart for that service. And so it is that in the Gospel we have this profound ark of God's saving, Jesus Christ, who is the ark in whom we are saved. But then we also have the ark of the presence of God that we are to carry on shoulders set apart for him, living lives of holiness that the glory of God might be manifest in our presence. And as a congregation, this is something that I think, having settled the salvation issue, having each one of us turned to Christ, reflected on our own sins, repented from our own sins, come to Christ in contrition of heart and declared him Lord. Having done that, now it is our responsibility to carry upon our shoulders the ark of his presence. His presence is with us for the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And yet, and yet, the Bible continually tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Bible continually tells us that we are to stir up these things inside of us. That we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of him, that is pleasing unto him. This is what God has called us to do. Why? Because God wants to manifest his glory in us, through us, to the world around us. God wants to live with his people. But if the pattern of the Old Testament is actually valid for the New Testament, which I think it is, then it's going to require on our part a commitment for the purpose of carrying the presence of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4 is a powerful declaration of the kind of life it's going to take for us to carry the ark of God's presence. Not our salvation, but the glory. You understand? So this differentiation between what carries us and what we carry just needs to be, I think, a part of our understanding so that we don't find ourselves feeling like we've got to do all these things in order to gain salvation and that become a legalistic thing in our lives. No, it's not about salvation. It's about carrying the glory of God. So listen to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll just end the service by reading this passage. And now listen with those attentive ears. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, pilgrims, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Skip on down to verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay, so now this is not your salvation, but this is your pilgrimage. We've been saved out of futility. We've been released from the prisons of our captivity to sin. But now as we are beginning this pilgrimage to walk to the very throne room of God, wanting the glory of God to manifest because we want to turn the dry places into wellsprings of life, 
then you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of what? Because of the ignorance that is in them. We cannot afford to spend another moment in ignorance, my friends. So educate yourself in the scripture. Now I'm offering commentary. Let's just read. They have been become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, I can't help myself. I'm going to offer commentary. Just have to. <laughs> greedy to practice every kind of impurity. My brothers, my sisters, as we walk the ancient path, if you want to walk the pilgrimage of the Lord, if you want rivers of living water to spring up on the inside of you, to turn your mourning into dancing, to turn your weeping into laughing, to turn, to turn your darkness into light, if you want to turn the wilderness around you into a fruitful field, then we must no longer walk in this kind of impurity. Because of the hardness of our hearts. That is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self. Put off your old self. Do you wonder why? You are not walking in such a way that the wilderness around you is turning into a fruitful field? Examine and see. Are you still carrying the old self? Have you still put on the old self? When you got up in the morning, are you still walking according to the old ways? Futile ways passed down from generation to generation by your fathers to you? Proud of your earthly heritage? Or are you putting off that old self and putting on the new self? Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no foolishness, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. If you're reading this right now and you're thinking, gosh, Christian life is boring, man. I can't even tell jokes. 
I just want you to know you haven't yet experienced the power of a wilderness turning into a fruitful field. The wilderness is the wilderness because of our filthy talk. It's still a wilderness for us and for everybody else because we, because we give ourselves to crudeness and to foolish pursuits. What if our creative time was reinstituted, our time to think, our time to dream, our time to imagine exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Imagine that time restored to us because we, because we actually took it back from the foolish coarse jesting that we entertain ourselves with when we click on that comedy show or we listen to that radio station or we flip through that TV channel or we watch that Okay, here I'm going to go. I'm going to make myself unpopular. Because it's that time of year again where I start railing about politics and sports. I had somebody once tell me, you will grow the church, Eric. If you put a flag, an American flag in your church, and you speak about politics from time to time, and you once in a while throw out a sporting reference. Okay, so I just... The, Oh, say, can you see? All right, let's see if the church grows. Go. I, I can't go that far. And um, look, here's the, here's the thing. So much time is wasted. I sat next to friends potential friends, people who could, have been, who could have been powerfully used to influence my life, and I maybe to, use to, influ to influence their lives, sat next to them in the theater for a couple of minutes. I saw the hand of God in preparing me to sit next to those people. I had spent the morning doing research on, of all things, what the profit is per acre of wheat, okay? I sat next to farmers who farm wheat. So I was ready to have conversations about wheat and then go from there, segue into something more. But you know what they wanted to talk about? NASCAR. It's the biggest thing in their lives. NASCAR. The opportunity for the kingdom was right there. But NASCAR stole it. How many opportunities have we wasted? I understand the necessity to have some hook and a, so you can segue into a conversation that leads to Christ. I recognize that. By all means, you know, you have your pursuits, you have your loves, and, and, and there's, it's okay to have the Lord allows us these all things to enjoy. But, my friends, when we are able to rattle off the statistics but can't find our way to the scripture, when we are more in tune with the latest episode of this or that on our favorite TV show but haven't taken five minutes to pray for our missionaries in the field or to maybe start planning, God, how can I go and bless them? I think we're, we're losing something. We're missing something. 
I think there's far more that God has for us. I think there's exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine through the power that works in us. What power is at work in us? Is there any power at work in us? I want to find that power. Come with me. Let's find that power. And let's apply that power. And let's walk in that power. Let's live in that power. Let's dream of that power. So that our children and our children's children will not have to say, we read about this once. Our parents used to talk about something that happened long before their time. No, I want our children and our children's children to walk in the glory of God and to see it for themselves. Because we were courageous enough to believe that God is able. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves again to you and to your righteous and ancient way. We commit ourselves again. Lord, you are the ark that saves us. And now let us carry you in the ark of God, the presence of the Lord on our shoulders. For you have determined that those who abide in your word, you will abide in them and they will bear much fruit. Abba, you have saved us and we are eternally grateful. Now, Spirit of God, rise up amongst us. Stir our hearts that we may gladly shed the old self and put on the new. Come, Lord, stir us and give us courage. In Jesus' name.